Well, interesting to know, in 1861, there was a 21-year-old medieval studies scholar who, his name was Paul Meyer, and he was sanctioned to go to an auction in Sotheby to secure works on behalf of the French National Library. And he goes, and they don't have as much money as other libraries, but he's supposed to find classic works of French literature for their shelves. And so he goes to a very famous auction, and he records there that there was a lot of ancient books, a lot of beautiful copies of ancient books, which was why he was there. But his eyes weren't drawn to those things. He said his eyes were drawn to something from Lot 51, because there was one book there, he said, was unmarked. And it was larger than the rest of the books. And it looked like a modern-day, hardback-bound book. It was inconspicuous, unlabeled, brown leather. And he was intrigued. And he said when he opened it, he realized he was the first person to open this in at least 200 years, 250 years. It was written on vellum by an Anglo-Norman scribe in the 14th century. And as the auction went on, the British Museum offered 200 pounds and then another archivist, 250 pounds. And as these things tend to go, there was a very uh, openly wealthy book addict who offers the outrageous price, as he did with all of the books there, of 380 pounds. And he wins the book. He takes it home to his own library where it never gets opened. And a matter of fact, it, it remains shut. He moves to a new estate, and then his books become divided, and Paul Meyer becomes obsessed with finding this book. He knew there was something special in it, and he petitions the man. He petitions his family. The caretakers cannot gain access. Eventually, the man dies, and the book is lost. The family disputes his library, and so the book is lost for two decades when finally Paul Mayer gets access to this book, and he opens it, and he realizes that he's actually the first person to read this book in over 600 years. And as he opens it, this book lays out in glorious detail the life of William Marshall. Does anybody know that name? William Marshall became the most famous knight in the medieval age, and he became famous largely because of this book, this find. He was the living embodiment of what every kid wanted to be if you lived a 1,000 years ago. You wanted to be like Lancelot, the great, bold, brave knight. He wasn't just bold and courageous and brave, but he was good. And he, this is where we get the, the picture of what a knight is supposed to be was from this man, William Marshall. He was the power behind five English thrones. And from him, because of him, in the years after, there came to be known the code of honor that we know among knights. He was what the French would call, and Ramona Farthing, Farthing will correct me if I'm wrong, the, the prudhomme. The, the warrior fighter the, literally means in French the best kind of man because through him, knights became known as they are today, brave, valiant soldiers, not just powerful and courageous, but good in the sense of strong moral fiber and strong moral character. It's what this book taught. And we want the same thing from our leaders today. It wasn't just then. They didn't want just bold, brave, courageous leaders. We want, even in the political realm, brave, bold leaders but not just brave, we want them to be good, don't we? We want not political leaders, we want statesmen. And statesmen aren't around anymore. And you might even ask, what's the difference between a great leader and a statesman? And the answer is, a statesman is one who rises above and thinks for themselves. They think above all the political and cultural rhetoric of the day, and they make decisions that are good and pure and true. And they're brave, and they observe a code of conduct, and 
They're brave enough to do what is right. They're above reproach. They're good men. They're good women. And it's for that reason that we like to read stories about guys like Winston Churchill, the statesman, or Edmund Burke. We like to read stories, even as children, to have our parents tuck us in with a book in hand so we can read about guys like William Marshall, who were brave and good. And though we would never admit it, deep down, even as adults, we kind of want to be like William Marshall. And we might not say it out loud, but we want to be like them, which is maybe why we play video games where we get to be brave, or we play board games where we get to play the characters like this man. And if you'll turn in your Bible as we continue to 1 Thessalonians into chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul pictures himself like a parent. He's like unto a father putting his child to bed, bringing out the age-old stories of knights and kings and He's a herald to them and a storyteller, and he's telling them about the brave men and women who fight for their king. And he tells them about the strong code of conduct that they carry and about their shining armor and about their two-edged swords. And as Paul teaches them, uh, there begins to, an outline begins to form where he says, or a theme begins to form. He says, I, I'm, I'm proclaiming to you what is called the gospel of the kingdom, the good news, and the beauty of it is he says it's not a kingdom that was a 1,000 years ago in this feudal society in medieval Europe, but this is a kingdom that is now. And Paul says, as a matter of fact, I am a storyteller for that kingdom. He says, I am an official representative of that kingdom. I'm a herald of the kingdom. I come to you to proclaim the code of conduct for the kingdom, and above all, I've come to introduce you to the king of the kingdom. And that is what this text is about. You can meet the king himself. Read with me in 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 9. Paul tells the Thessalonian church, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and into his own glory. So the outline of our passage comes in verses 9 through 12. First, Paul identifies himself and establishes himself as the herald of the kingdom, the messenger, the storyteller of the kingdom. In verse 9, in verse 10, he says, and I proclaim to you, the code of conduct that you have to keep if you're going to be a member of this kingdom, there is a lifestyle associated with the gospel. And he said, and that's one thing that I'm here to tell you, the code of conduct for the kingdom. And then verses 11 to 12, he says, I want to talk to you about the king of the kingdom himself, the king of the kingdom. And he starts with establishing himself as God's representative, his chosen instrument to the Gentiles. Verse 9, you remember, brothers, our labor, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel. So Paul identifies himself as a preacher. And he uses a key word here that comes over and over in scripture. He's, a, he's one who proclaims. And we learned this before when we looked at our, our, church, our study not that long ago of what is the church. And we had to say, well, what is a pastor? What does he do when he preaches? And there's over 100 words in scripture that are used to describe what pastors do in their preaching. 
We exhort, we encourage, we rebuke, we teach, we, we do all of these things. But above all, the most used word in Scripture to describe preaching is this word, proclaiming. And really, all of these, the main preaching words mean the same thing. They mean to proclaim. But this one has the added nuance. It's caruson, which is tied to the noun carux, which was a herald, a herald, an official representative of the king. Given the message of the king, you're not allowed to tamper with the message. You are given it, and you must reproduce it faithfully. You're to gather an audience, cup your hands together, and proclaim faithfully that which is given to you. And Paul says, I am a herald of the kingdom of God. And he says he doesn't only proclaim, verse 12, get in, 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 into the nuance of what he's doing. It says he exhorts, he encourages, he charges. These were all things that were part of his ministry of proclamation to Thessalonica. He's an official messenger of the king. And I think he uses this word especially here because the theme of this passage is regal. There is a royal theme here. This is a regal word, a kingly passage. And what the herald would do in the ancient world, his job was to be a faithful messenger of the king, but above all, he was to be in service of the king. And as you read the history books, you learn that heralds would even prepare the way for the king, which is why John the Baptist said, I'm a, the one who goes and prepares the way, but they would even draw baths for their tired sovereigns. So what is a herald? A herald is a messenger of the king. That's what Paul says, he labored as a herald. He toiled night and day. He labored and toiled. And these words basically mean the same thing. To labor is to toil. They're just work generally. And I want to point out that he uses them both together to be emphatic. He wants you to know how busy he was. He wants you to know what great lengths he went to so that he didn't become a burden to anybody in this church. He says, I don't want refrigerator space from you. Right? I, don't, I don't want to take away your your personal space. I don't want to take away your money out of your wallets. I don't want to take away a spare bedroom out of your home. He's trying to emphasize, I stayed busy to not be a burden to you. And so he says he labored and he toiled. And this isn't referring to his work of proclamation. This is referring to his work as a leather worker and his work as a tent maker, his secular work, his bivocational ministry. And he says he did it night and day. And this doesn't mean he did it all the time. It means he worked while it was nighttime sometimes. And he worked while it was daytime sometimes. And there's uh, some of your translations will, will seem to infer that, that when he toiled, he did it while he proclaimed the gospel, meaning that he proclaimed the gospel while he was working. Meaning he labored and toiled while he proclaimed the gospel, as in his work was a platform for the proclamation of the gospel. And I think that's true. I think that's what he did. It's Paul. Of course it's true. That's what he did. But that's not what this passage is trying to tell you. What it's trying to emphasize to you is he worked while it was night. He worked while it was day. He, he labored and he toiled so that after hours, he could come and proclaim to them the gospel. And I'm sure he did it while he was at work, but he did it after hours. And he says, the emphasis says he tries to do it so that he's not a burden when he came and preached to them. He didn't want their money or their time. And so I want you to imagine with me a life where you have to have a full-time job. And some of you are already checked out. You're like, sounds ridiculous. You have to imagine with me a life where you have to work a full-time job with full-time hours. And for many of you, it's how you fill your days. It might not be employment in a formal sense, but you're filling your day with meaningful labor. 
And then at the same time, you're serving in a meaningful way according to the spiritual gifts that God has given you. Does it sound exhausting? Working a full-time job, being fruitful in a meaningful, intentional ministry. And then, as Paul says here, you're at church every time the doors are opened, serving not only the world and the culture and the vulnerable, but your own people and your own family, working, doing meaningful ministry. And at the church, every time the doors are open, can you, can you imagine? Of course you can imagine, because this is your calling, right? This is what it means to be a Christian. And Paul redeems this. He says, I worked night and day. I engaged in laboring ministry. I came to preach to you. And many of you, that's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be serving. You're going to be opening your mouth and proclaiming. And Paul redeems that in our passage today. He says, of course you can do this. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is your calling. He was a herald, a herald with his words, yes, but also with his actions. And the moment that you become a Christian, you too become a herald of the king of glory. He was a herald, and you become a herald. And you're not just a herald like Paul with, his, with your words and with his words, but Paul shows you he was a herald with his actions. He preached it. He opened his mouth and proclaimed it. He also used his words. And so we've said over and over that he worked a full-time job so that he didn't have to be a burden to them. But what he's doing is that He's making sure that his message or his life doesn't get in the way of his message. He wants the message that he preaches to match his life, which is why he says the gospel is free and so am I. I don't charge for my conferences, he says. I don't charge to be in my presence. He says in verse 9, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So the gospel's free and so his message is free. He says the gospel by its own power and work lifts up burdens he says, and am I going to come to you and chain myself to your wallets? He says, no, I, it's, it's a lifting. And I need, to have, I need to make sure that I have a level and straight highway into your mind and into your hearts. And so he says, I don't come like all of the preachers and the philosophers of this age. I come different. I don't have my hand out. I don't take any money. I'm free, and my work is free. Acts 20, verse 33, Paul says, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, that's bivocational ministry. We must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So why does Paul work? There's a whole host of reasons. He says, I work so that I can set an example to you. I've shown you the way. He redeems bivocational tent-making ministry for us. He shows us the value of labor, and he says, this is something that's to be praised fruitful, busy labor in the Lord. He sets an example of busyness. And he, number two, he illustrates the gospel's lifting qualities. And he gives us permission to do the same. You don't have to charge. You don't have to make a, a killing through this, through this ministry. And maybe you can give me a nod if you've watched the new Hillsong documentary of Hillsong Exposed, where you see that many of the leaders in that movement did it for precisely this reason to make money, to, they've, they've weighed people down. They're not above reproach. He says, I, I, wanna, I don't want to be a burden to you. I want to show you that the gospel is free, that it lifts and uplifts. He does it, he says, because he wants to have the means to be generous. If you work, then you have more money. If you have more money, then you have more money to give away. And then it goes on to number four, where he says he wants to be blessed. Why do you work? First of all, because work is fruitful. But second, because he says it's blessed to give. And if you want to truly believe the Bible and trust the Bible, the Bible tells us that it is a blessing. 
It is a joy. It is, brings peace to your soul and happiness and harmoniousness to your soul when you give your money away. And if you believe that, then you'll do as Paul did and follow his example and work so that you have a means to be generous. He says, I want this for all of you. I want you to be blessed. He says, not only to bless others, but he says, I don't want to be, I work so that I'm not a burden to you. John Stott has a really helpful quote here. He says, true, it is an expression of love to support others who are in need, but it is also an expression of love to support ourselves so as not to need to be supported by others. So it's one thing to support others and to love them by supporting them. He says it's another thing entirely to support ourselves so that we don't need to be supported by others. And finally, he says, I don't want to burden the church with taking your food, taking your fridge space, taking your lodging, taking your money. I want a level highway. So he, he makes here basically two kinds of missionaries. He shows that there's tent-making missionaries, and then there's missionaries who are supported by the church. And by the way, Paul was both, and Paul redeems both, and both are fine in the Lord. And I want you to think about this. Which do you think there are more of in this world today? Tent-making ministers or tent-making pastors or those who are supported by the church? Because there are minister, there's missionaries in this way and there are pastors in this way, and Paul was both. He said to the Philippian church, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Talking to Philippi, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So what was Paul's way of doing ministry? Well, he didn't take money from you while he was there. And he says this to the Philippian church. He says, while I was there, I wanted the gospel to be free. But once you understood my heart and you understood what I was doing and my motivations, then I accepted money from you so that I could go and proclaim the gospel to the next city. And presumably he would do the same to Thessalonica. Now that you know who I am and you know that I'm not, not like everybody else, then he will accept money. That's his way of ministering. And this is the way this bivocational ministry is how most of the pastors in our Southern Baptist Convention preach. 65% of pastors, at least in our convention, are bivocational. They're tent-making pastors. And on this, there's one of the first preachers of the early church, just as an aside, he was an expository preacher, John Chrysostom, the golden mouth preacher. You go back to the early church, it shows that what we do here on Sunday morning and the way that we do it has been done since the beginning of the church. 2,000 years, we've been expositors. And Chrysostom in an expository sermon writes or speaks about bivocational pastors and he says, you might see each of them now yoking oxen to the plow and cutting a deep furrow in the ground. And yet at another time with their word cleansing out sins from men's souls. They're not ashamed of work, they're ashamed of idleness, knowing that idleness is a teacher of all wickedness. And while the philosophers walk around with their conspicuous cloaks and staves and beards, the plain men are far truer philosophers. They teach immorality and judgment to come and conform all their life to these hopes, being instructed by the divine writings. That's Paul, isn't it? That's Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy. They've said over and over, we're not like the philosophers of our age. We don't have beards like them. We don't carry big staves like them to show off. And we don't come proclaiming the philosophy of the day. We come proclaiming the gospel. And we're telling you the truth. And we're not doing it to make money. As a matter of fact, we won't take a cent from you. He says, we are, Chrysostom calls them good and useful men. And I think that's exactly what Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy were. They were good and useful men. They weren't like me. They had skills that they could use to serve the church and God's people. 
And so there's nothing deficient, Paul says, about being a bivocational minister. And as a matter of fact, he says it's something to be praised. I want to draw your attention, if you have a bulletin to the front, the title of the sermon is Paul, Our Father, Christ, Our King. Because the two things are true at once. And Paul creates a metaphor where he says his coming to them was like a father. And I want to bring to your, to your mind again the image of a father tucking in his child or his children at night, telling them the story of the great saints of old or the knights of the round table. And he says to them, I came to you as a father, but only as a platform so that I could talk to you about the king. He says, I'm your father and the Lord, but Christ is your king. And as he came, as he came to Thessalonica, he came with three metaphors. And we took this as advice for how we are if we are Christians with power, if we are teachers or parents or landlords or whatever it is we are. There's a way, Paul says, that we are to come to the culture from a position of authority or power. And he says, I came first as an infant, emphasizing his innocence and his gentleness. And then he says, last week, we saw he said, I came as a mother, emphasizing his Get the willing of giving himself and love. And now in our passage today, he says, I come to you as a father. And there's a one-for-one -one connecting point to what he's trying to accomplish with this metaphor. And when he says, I came to you as a father, what he's telling them is, I came to you as a father in this age would, giving you ethical and moral instruction. I taught you what was right. You know what's right because your dad teaches you what's right. And again, like a dad tucking in his children, he says, I came to you to tell you the story of the gospel. And the story of the gospel, according to Matthew 24, 14, it calls the good news of Jesus Christ the good news of the kingdom. Because this is a royal theme. Jesus Christ is the king. And some would say that this is the theme of the entire Bible. Jesus is the king. You submit your own heart to him. You lay down your arms. You raise his standard. And he becomes the king of this heart, even as he's the king of the universe. And so Paul, as he tells the story of the king, cannot help but proclaim to them the code of conduct for living in this kingdom, which brings us to our second point, the code of conduct for the kingdom. And in the Middle Ages, uh, William Marshall and moving on in the centuries ahead, there came to, to be, uh, there came to develop an informal code of honor or code of conduct about knights, which is what we see when we watch the movies and what we read about when we read the books and this code became known as chivalry. Chivalry is the same root word as cavalry because it was the cavalrymen who were the knights and who were supposed to be chivalrous. They went together. And chivalry came to develop. Again, it was the standards that told you how you are to behave in life, how you are to treat the poor and how you are to treat the oppressed, how you are to treat your enemies on and off the battlefield, that you're supposed to respect your fellow man. This is the kind of thing that chivalry taught. And in 1790, a statesman, Edmund Burke, the Irish statesman, looked on the morals of our society. This is years and years and centuries after this code of conduct had developed. And as he looks at the falling morals of our Western culture, he looks around at the French Revolution going on around him, and he pronounced famously, chivalry is dead. And is it? I think it is. He was right. The morals of our culture are gone. The, the veil has been removed. Our society doesn't respect morals anymore. They don't respect the God of the Bible. Chivalry is dead. They've declared God dead. They weep for him. 
We no longer know how to treat our enemies or our fellow man. And this is true for the world, but this is not true for the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is what I want to point out. We have a code of conduct. It's not informal. It's highly formal. And Paul comes proclaiming to us exactly what our code of conduct is, how to treat the poor and the vulnerable, how we are to behave in the world, how we are to treat our enemies, how to respect our fellow man. And so far be it from us, so, so far as we are in this church, chivalry is alive and chivalry thrives. And so Paul, like any good father, teaches moral values. And he comes and he teaches the Thessalonians how they are to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, you are witnesses. God is also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct among you. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. He tells them, walk worthy. There's a code of conduct. There's a lifestyle attached to the gospel. And he says, I modeled for you what it meant to live like this. In part, he digs into it. He says, I'm holy. I was holy, and I was righteous, and I was blameless among you. And looking at these words, he first says, I was holy. This is what it means to walk worthy. And this isn't the normal word that you see when saints of the church are called holy ones. It's not this word. When God is called holy, it's not this word. This is a word that just means devout or upright or pious. And it's giving you the vertical dimension of his entering into among the Thessalonians. Remember, he's, he's not preoccupied yet with their conduct. He's not yet talking about how they imitated him. He's first talking about how he entered in among the city. And he says, and when I came, there was a vertical dimension. You saw how pious I was, how I was concerned with the things that are above more than the things that are of this earth. He says, I was holy. And not just holy, he says, I was righteous. This is part of our code of conduct. He says, I didn't wrong anyone or take advantage of anyone. That's what the word means. He says, in my entering in among you, the horizontal aspect, my relationship, my personal relationships with you were above reproach, the, the horizontal aspect. And finally, he said, I was blameless. And this doesn't mean sinless. It just means that nobody could bring any reproach against him. Nobody could say a word against him because his conduct was pure. And so this was the behavior that he manifested as he engaged in the fatherly work of, as he moves on, appealing to them and encouraging them and imploring them. I want to look at these words, appealing. First, he says, I appealed to you. And this word's hard to define because its meaning is incredibly broad. But there's kind of two camps that could fall into this. It can either mean an earnest plea, as in he's begging them to live this way. Or it could mean he's comforting them as he encourages them to live this way. That's why the NIV translates the verse encouraging and comforting and urging. The NLT says, we pleaded with you, we encouraged you, and we urged you. And I don't think you have to nail down an exact definition to get the gist here of what Paul's saying, do you? He's saying, I'm trying to get you like a father to live like this. This is how you are to live, holy, righteous, blameless. He doesn't appeal to them, but it says he also encourages them. It means literally to give advice or to give counsel, which is what a father does for his children. And when your kids go away, there's an amazing ability where they call back because they need advice and they need help. And this is what we do as fathers in the Lord and as fathers of our own children. And finally, and this is where he leans into them, saying this is the code of conduct. It says he implores them, which literally means he begs them. He says, I urge you, I beg you, I implore you. This is the lifestyle for you to live. You're a representative of your king. 
You're created in the image of God. You're imaging God for the world. He says, your actions are telling the world each and every day a story about what your God is like. And so please live like this. Please live like I'm living as I seek to live like Christ lived. And why does he appeal? Why does he encourage? Why does he implore? Well, the verse tells you in verse 12, he gives moral instruction so that you will walk in a manner worthy of God. Be righteous, he says, and walk worthy. Uh, the youth know this from False Creek. They, they talked about the worthy walk. Colossians has a lot to say about the worthy walk. And if you go to chapter 1, verse 10 of that book, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And so he says, increase in the knowledge of God. That's theological education. Learn more about this God. Read good books. Go to church and listen to the sermon and take notes. And he says, and bear fruit. That's part of the code of conduct. That's equipping saints for the work of the ministry. That's mission trips. That's advancing the gospel. That's caring for the vulnerable. That's seeking the welfare of the city and driving a van for Pot County Go and seeking the beauty of the town that we live in. That's fruit. It's living a holy life. And what happens if you don't observe the code of conduct for the kingdom of God? Paul mentions in Romans 2.24, he says, the name of God will be blasphemed among the Gentiles and it will be your fault. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God says in Isaiah, my name is despised because of you, because you are imaging God and you are created in the image of God. And so Paul says what the code of conduct is, and he also mentions, especially in Colossians, what the code of conduct is not. He says in verses 5 and 8 of Colossians 3, a worthy walk is not sexual immorality or impurity or passion or evil desires or coveting, being jealous, which is idolatry. It's not anger. It's not wrath. It's not malice, it's not slander, it's not lying, it's not obscene talk and allowing perverse things to come out of your mouth. When we talk about walking worthy of the Lord and being called unto a worthy walk, we're talking about fitness in the gospel. We're talking about appropriateness in the gospel because these things from Colossians 3 are not fitting for one who lives as a citizen of the kingdom of God. They are not appropriate for somebody who bears his image and lives as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so last week we said, in the words of Rosaria Butterfield, that the gospel comes with a house key. When you give somebody the gospel, you give them access to yourself. And we see it in this week, we add to it that the gospel comes with a lifestyle as well. It comes with a house key and it comes with a lifestyle. And so you're gonna go into the world and you're gonna see advertisement after advertisement, each brand now, it is just the how they do business is they offer you through their brand a lifestyle. You can have the lifestyle that's afforded by wearing Nike or the lifestyle that comes from wearing Under Armour. And you can have those things. But Paul says the lifestyle that I offer you in Christ, the lifestyle that comes with the gospel is unlike any lifestyle that you will find anywhere else on this earth because it's gentle and it's lowly as you'll see. And so he says, in light of that, live this lifestyle and walk worthy of the kingdom that you represent in your high calling in Christ. Paul is the herald of the kingdom. He begs you to walk according to the code of honor of the kingdom. And now he says, I want to give attention to the king himself. 
the king of the kingdom. Verse 12, we exhorted each, each of you, each of you, and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom, into, into his own glory. If you are a Christian, you were called. You were called into his kingdom. Calling is synonymous with conversion. Your calling is your salvation. And all through scripture, calling is, is something you're called. You're called into a multifaceted, great, grand, deep relationship with God. He says in 1 Peter 2, through the words of Peter, we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's one picture of your salvation. Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brothers, freedom from the law, freedom to serve Christ fully. Ephesians 1, you're called to hope. Paul begins to say to the Thessalonians, even in our passage today, he says, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4.7. He says to 2 Thessalonians 2.14, we are called to glory. To this he has called you through the gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what he says in verse 12. You were called into his own kingdom and to his own glory. And the entire discussion here of the to the Thessalonian church, surrounds and em emphasizes Jesus Christ as the sovereign king. He's the focal point of the story. Christ is our king. He says he's our king and he's our sovereign. We bow the knee to him. His work is a sovereign work. His calling is a sovereign work. Paul is his sovereign herald. And once you accept the gospel and lay down your arms and serve him, you become, it becomes your sovereign work. Paul is a sovereign herald. You are a sovereign herald. His kingdom is our sovereign inheritance. Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory, the King of kings, the sovereign. And Paul teaches here that the end and the goal of our salvation is the rule of Jesus Christ, his kingdom. That's what his kingdom is, is his rule and reign. And we'll ever sing all glory be to Christ. And it's also the beauty of Christ, his glory. The resplendence, visible resplendence of all of his perfection shining forward in Christ. You see it pictured in the Mount of Transfiguration when he pulls back the veil and all of his perfections are just a blight, blinding, blinding, brilliant light that sin has no ability to stand in. It's purity. And what that is is, again, the visible resplendence of all of his perfections. You're called into his beauty, his kingdom, and his glory. And this passage teaches us that as citizens, there's something more to live for than ourselves. His kingdom is higher than our little kingdom that we're capable of building here on earth. With our little social networks and our bank accounts and our power and our glory, he says, his kingdom is greater than ours. And you could even translate verse 12, could be translated, who calls you into his glorious kingdom. His kingdom is glorious, ours is pathetic. And he says, you get to be called into a kingdom that is greater than anything you could ever build on your own. And it's pure and it's good, it's bigger than you. And he says that there's something greater to live for than your own, your own self-rule. His rule is greater than yours. His morality and his rule and his law given to us in these 66 books are greater than the rules that we have for ourselves and our own biased morality. And his law is better than our federal democratic rule. There's something greater than us, and it's the just, beautiful, good, pure, fair rule of King Jesus. There's something greater for us to live than our own glory as well. 
Because 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says that we can share in the glory of Christ. And think about the Mount of Transfiguration and see the resplendence of his glory. And I think you recognize that's better than anything we can come up with on our own. And this all happens. You are invited into all of this by hearing the gospel of the glorious kingdom and by responding in faith. And so you share in his kingdom, you share in his rule, and you share in his glory, but it, re it requires you bowing the knee to the king. You say, I am not king of my life any longer. I submit to another. You put down your own standard and you raise the standard and the flag of Jesus Christ and you fly it in your own heart. You take up your sword and now you fight for another. You've defected from the kingdom of this world. You've gotten rid of the God of this world. You've turned your back on him and you have embraced the God of life and the king of glory. That's what salvation is. Peter says, 2 Peter 1.3, we are called to his glory and excellence. 1 Peter 5.10, we are called to his eternal glory. Ours is not an eternal glory. And so from the moment that you are called, you become a citizen of Christ's kingdom, which is a beautiful and honorable, chivalrous, noble thing. But not everybody thinks so. And you may be like William Marshall. He might have been the most glorious and chivalrous knight that ever walked the earth. But as an Englishman, the French didn't think so. And so you are a citizen of heaven. Do not expect the world to honor you or your code of conduct or your ethics. Remember that friendship with the world is enmity against God. Look what Paul, look what happened to Paul, the bright knight, as he went into the Philippian town. What happened to Christ, the pure Lord of glory, the king as he came into Jerusalem? What happened to him among the Romans and the Jews? You might have a glory about you, but the world doesn't think so because you live in a world that's full of men and women who are building their own kingdoms and seeking their own glory and their own rule by their own standards. Individuals who will not submit to the kingdom of God and who refuse to live by his ethics. And so you live in the midst of a world that flies the flag of another king and another God. Insisting, you insist to them that they lay down their weapons and surrender. And it's not a message that they appreciate. And so what you need is the armor of God. That's what it's for, to be in battle in this great cosmic war that you're a part of. And what you need is what Paul said last week, to remind yourselves that we need boldness of speech, or it doesn't matter what the consequences of our words are. We preach with respect to the gospel. We preach the gospel. It doesn't matter what the world's going to say. We have sworn allegiance to another, and he has said there's a code of conduct, and there's a message that you are to proclaim. And as heralds of the kingdom, we do not tamper with the message. And we can't be worried about what the God of this world will think of us. And the great irony is that Paul says when we face opposition, we cannot face it like a conquering king would face opposition. We face opposition, we face our enemies like Paul faced his enemies, like Christ faced his enemies. Paul says, I came to you like an infant, gentle and innocent. I came to you like a mother in love, willing to give myself. And if you're a mother taking from your child, you've got it exactly wrong. What mother takes from her child? There may come a time when you can no longer take care of yourself. But Paul says, I would never. It's against nature. It's against God for me to take from you. Far be it from me. I come to you in love and giving of myself like a father. If a father doesn't teach you pure moral standards according to God's law, then he's not being a good father to you. 
Because this is the role of the father, is to train the children in the way to live, in their morality, in their ethics. We come like a father. And finally, Paul said last week, having the boldness in our God to declare the gospel in the midst of much conflict. Because you're in the middle of a cosmic war. In church heritage, you are, as they called it in medieval times, a milites Christi, a soldier of Jesus. And if you want to be a knight in this world for Christ, then be a knight. If you want to be brave and bold, then, then vow to live for him and vow to die for him. You can do that. This is your calling in Christ, to take up the sword and to go where he calls you to go, to observe the code of conduct, to be brave and strong and, then, and, and good, to be a statesman, to be a knight, to be chivalrous. And Jesus says, when you do this, this is how you participate in Christ's eternal kingdom. This is how you live as a citizen of heaven. Finally, I'll leave you with the words of 1 Peter 2, 9. Remember what Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light.